0: I want us to turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As I said earlier, so much in my heart tonight regarding not only this great chapter, but also backing up maybe just a tad and catching again from the end of chapter 2, what I want to bring as a message to you tonight regarding three great metaphors which depict the Church of Jesus Christ. And you have, of course, become familiar with this, not only because we have taught these things before, we even did a message uh, last Lord's Day, uh, when we celebrated the Lord's Supper, as we begun to think and we began to think about these things. And I want to talk about these metaphors again, three of them. Uh, If you have a paper that you'd like to write these three metaphors in order to capture the outline points of the message, the first one is this uh, the metaphor of the superstructure of a building. The superstructure of a building. And then, secondly, the steady growth and maturity of a body. The steady growth and maturity of a body. And then thirdly, the stunting of growth in children by the waves and wind of false doctrine. Now, I'll give these to you again. But the third is the stunting of growth in children by the waves and wind of false doctrine. And we'll enumerate these again as we go through the message. But Paul gives us this sense of three metaphors. The first is the superstructure of a body, of a building, excuse me. And of course, it has reference to the building up of one another into this massive, marvelous superstructure of God. And then we see, that's of course in chapter 2, and we'll read a little bit of that in a moment, and then, as you get into chapter 4 and move your way through verse 11 all the way down to the end of this section, which is verse 16, you have the metaphor of the human body. And you can see there Paul talking about the steady growth and maturity of that body. And then, right in the middle of Paul talking about this body metaphor, referring, of course, to the church of Jesus Christ as the spiritual body of Christ, he talks about the winds and waves of doctrine, specifically false doctrine. And so he changes the metaphor right in the middle of his section on the, the growth of a body to talk about the insidious wind and waves on the sea as though it were tossing a boat to and fro. And that boat was just moving its way because of the prevailing wind. So he changes even his own metaphor there uh, to talk about uh, the wiles of Satan. And we're going to talk about that in detail in a moment. But he uses these three metaphors to talk about the things for which are most needful to us to define, to understand, and to apply very carefully to our Christian lives. And so these are the three points that we want to occupy ourselves with tonight. And we'll start with the superstructure of a building. The superstructure of a building. And notice what Paul says in chapter 2, just backing up a little bit from chapter 4, and looking, for instance, beginning in verse 20. Ephesians 2.20. Now, of course, even prior to that, A particular section. He's talking a couple of verses earlier about the fact that uh, Jews and Gentiles together are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens. And he uses that metaphor of the idea that we're citizens together in the kingdom of God. So he uses that. And then he says, and members of the household of God. So he talks about Jews and Gentiles as though they were members of the same spiritual family. So he uses a metaphor there to talk about Uh, this reality of Jews and Gentiles coming together in Christ. And then he changes the metaphor again for a third time, talking in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure... Now there's the metaphor. The metaphor of a building. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this structure, this particular structure, is a temple. And he says in verse 22, finishing off this particular metaphor, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if you look at chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, you see this this building of a superstructure, this this building, this edifice. And the first idea that you see here is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Of course, with any building uh, that you're talking about, literally speaking, you're talking about a building which must have a proper foundation, right? It's not going to stand strong. It's not going to weather uh, the, the storms of life unless there's a proper foundation. And it says here, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we've talked about that in great detail. Jesus commissioned apostles and he commissioned prophets in order to speak forth the word of God. Remember that the New Testament hadn't been fully written. And what God was doing was taking apostles, uh, the very disciples of the Lord Jesus, who had seen him, who had been witnesses of his resurrection, and he put them on a mission to to speak the truth of God's Word. And as they spoke the truth of God's Word, they were laying a foundation for the first century church. And then prophets came along in addition to the apostles, and they gave divine revelation from God because the Scripture had not yet been fully written and these prophets, these New Testament prophets, gave divine revelation instruction to the church so that the church could continue to build on the proper foundation of what God wanted them to know. Can you imagine if you were in a particular area, say, for instance, of Asia Minor, like Ephesus, and you were being told how the church is to operate, you're being instructed about how the church Uh, is to grow and and mature, and yet you didn't have what we have in the completed canon of the New Testament, you would, of course, be so desirous of hearing from the Lord everything that you needed to know to operate properly uh, in this building. And so God graciously, even though Scripture hadn't been fully written, gave these apostles and these prophets so that the church could have everything that you and I now enjoy through the completed Scripture. We have the full revelation of what God wants us to know. And they had everything they needed to know by God's design through these apostles and prophets. And what they were doing was building the proper foundation. And once that proper foundation was being laid, there was one important stone called the cornerstone here built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the corner stone, the most important stone in the edifice. That's what Paul's referring to there. Christ Jesus being the one who makes all of this possible. He's the key stone, the cornerstone in this building, this metaphor of the superstructure of the building of God, this holy temple. And then you notice, Thirdly, the whole structure being joined together. How is it joined together? It's joined together by all of us, as it were, brick and mortar. Peter even says it this way, that you are as living stones being built up as a spiritual house. So each one of us as individual members are a part of the building of this superstructure and we stand on this solid foundation of the apostolic teaching and the prophetic word now given to us in the word of God, sufficient for us to be led, to be taught, to be nurtured, to be matured with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And then this superstructure, the whole of it being joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And it's being, notice that continuation sense, we are being built together. We're built up, but we're also being built together further. The foundation's there, the cornerstone is there, the structure is rising, and from the first century all the way to the 21st century, and as long as the Lord wants us to continue to be here before Jesus comes, this, this structure is continually being built. More brick, more mortar more design, more reinforcement bar, so that we are being built this grand edifice of this holy temple in the Lord to the glory of God. This is the metaphor that Paul gives us here, the superstructure of a building. Now I ask the question under this first outline point, what is the chief threat to the building of God? What's the chief threat? And the answer is satanic temptations. Satanic temptations to destroy the building of this building. And of course, Paul gives us in Ephesians, especially in chapter 6, if you'll look over there for just a moment, in chapter 6, notice verse 10. And we're going to get there one of these days. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So we need to have a strong building using this metaphor, right? A strong building because we're strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Not our own, but His. Put on the whole armor of God. Now he changes the metaphor to the idea of a hand-to-hand combat. Uh, a a battle of epic proportions and we need to have our armor on uh, like the Roman soldier who was doing battle with the enemy so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore. Isn't that amazing? Be strong in the Lord, verse 10. Strength of His might, verse 10. And then you come down uh, to verse 13. Having done everything, stand firm. Stand therefore. We're to stand, we're to be alert, we're to be vigilant, we're to to have the strength of the Lord against the wiles, against the schemes of the devil. So if you put both those passages together, wouldn't you see then that the way that Satan would try to destroy the building, the building of God, what God is doing to build this beautiful edifice that we call the church, that He would do so by His various wily schemes And what kind of schemes? What kind of temptations? Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want you to see what I think Paul might be referring to here. What are some of Satan's schemes? I'm just going to give you two of them tonight. And I would say that the satanic temptations of jealousy and strife will help implode the building. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, for instance, in the middle part of verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 3, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then he uses the metaphor of actually planting like a vineyard. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor." But then notice the metaphor change. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and then notice this, God's building. So the same metaphor that he's using in chapter 2, he begins to use here, God's building. And then he says in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, just like he says in Ephesians chapter 3, God gave me His grace to be a steward of that grace. And here, because he's using this this metaphor of the building, he says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So there's a mention of the foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, like Christian preachers, like leaders, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He being the cornerstone, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Say if you're a Christian preacher, a Christian leader, Christian teacher, and you lay gold, silver, and precious stones, then of course that building's going to be built up. But if you lay wood, hay, and straw... Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. That is the day of judgment, the day of evaluation, because it will be revealed by fire. And if you have wood, hay, and straw and it's revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, that's that gold, silver, and precious stones, then he will be surviving, receiving award, a reward. A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, which certainly that wood, hay, and stubble will be, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then he says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple? There it is, the holy temple that he's talked about in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Aren't you God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, what would be destructive here? What would he be referring to? In what way is the temple being destroyed? Well, what did he say in chapter 3, verse 3? For while there is jealousy and strife among you. That's going to work to the destruction of that building. And the workers who allow such strife and jealousy in the fellowship... It's as though they're building upon wood, hay, and straw. And when the fire of evaluation comes, that's going to be built, uh, uh, that's going to be burned up. What you ought to do is build into this building the kind of gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, you're dealing with jealousy and strife in the midst of the body. You're dealing with that so that this building is actually built up and not destroyed. And that's why he goes on in verse 18 to say, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these these same ones that people say, well, I'm following Paul and I'm following Apollos and I'm following Peter. He says, look, don't have strife and jealousy among you. You're, you're, You're tearing the building down when you have these factions and divisions in the fellowship. You're not building the building up. You're tearing it down. So I just use that as one illustration that if there is jealousy and strife, you could add what he adds in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning, for instance, in verse 25 and moving your way through, there there is slander and malice and bitterness and anger and falsehood. Those are more satanic temptations that if you fall to them in this building metaphor it's as though you are trying to construct it with wood, hay, and stubble. And when the fire of evaluation comes, and it will come, those things that you tried to build the body up with that included those things will be burned up and the building with it. And I got to thinking about this. And I got to thinking about the idea of Satan's temptations and... the the jealousy and the strife and the anger and the falsehoods and the malice and the bitterness and all the things that Satan will try to drive a wedge in this building between the brick and the mortar so that the building is not built up but destroyed and torn down. And I started thinking about this very metaphor of the building and I listened to uh, a description of how building implosions work. Listen to this. Very interesting. You can demolish a stone wall with a sledgehammer. And it's fairly easy to level a five-story building using excavators and wrecking balls. But of course, that's not Satan's strategy, right? He doesn't pull out the wrecking ball and start wreaking havoc on the building. I mean, we'd all see that, we'd all say to ourselves, look, there's destruction happening, we've got to stop that. And everybody's running, right, to to turn off the machine, to stop the wrecking ball, uh, to tell the excavators to stop. But it's much more insidious than that. It's like an implosion. It goes on to say, uh, when you need to bring down a massive structure, say a 20-story building, a high-rise You have to haul out the big guns. Explosive demolition is the preferred method for safely and efficiently demolishing larger structures. Did you hear that? Explosive demolition. When a building is surrounded by by other buildings, it may be necessary to implode the building. That is, make it collapse down into its footprint. And I thought, That's exactly what Satan attempts to do. He doesn't bring the wrecking ball on the outside. He tries to bring the jealousy and the strife and the backbiting and the anger inside in individual rooms where the detonation can go off at the proper time. The basic idea of explosive demolition is quite simple. If you remove the support structure of a building at a certain point, the section of the building above, that point will fall down on part of the building below that point. If this upper section is heavy enough, it will collide with the lower part with sufficient force to cause significant damage. The explosives are just the trigger for the demolition. Think about anger, jealousy, strife, bitterness, anger, malice, wrath. Those are just the triggering of the detonation demolition blasters load explosives on several different levels of the building so that the building structure falls down on itself at multiple points when everything is planned and executed correctly the total damage of the explosives and falling building material is sufficient to collapse the structure entirely in order to demolish a building safely, blasters must map out each element of the implosion ahead of time. Can you not see Satan working very carefully to map out a strategy, the wiles of the devil, the schemes of Satan? He place, places these detonating explosives in just the right place because he knows just the right way to bring the building down onto itself. The first step is to examine architectural blueprints of the building if they can be located to determine how the building is put together next the blaster crew tours the the build the blaster crew tours the building several times jotting down notes about the support structure on each floor once they have gathered all the raw data they need the blasters hammer out a plan of attack drawing from past experiences with similar buildings They decide what explosives to use, where to position them in the building, and how to time their detonations. That's that's an exact parallel to what Satan does to the building of God. Strictly speaking, this concludes an implosion is an event where something collapses inward, because the external atmosphere pressure is greater than the internal pressure. A building implosion isn't truly an implosion. Atmospheric pressure doesn't pull or push the structure inward. Gravity makes it collapse. It's the gravity of the weight of all the accusations, all the hurt, all the damage, all the sin, And Satan allows us in our own minds to be convinced that what we're doing is the good thing, the right thing, the best thing in order to try to handle life. And actually what we're doing is setting up detonating explosives right where he wants them so that the building by gravity, the force of sin falls and collapses onto itself and the building is close to being destroyed. Now here's the wonderful thing from the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, I will what? Build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Aren't you glad of that? This this is the, the truth of the Word of God that the building of God will not collapse upon itself. It will not implode and these detonations will be short-circuited by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean we don't have hard work to try to find out where these explosives are located in the various rooms, right? And what we have to do with our responsibility as fellow believers is to ensure that we are separating the various wires so that we can make sure that the building does not have tiny explosions tiny explosions so that the building is not damaged at all not only will there not be an implosion of the building but hardly any explosion of the detonation of that building if we are watching vigilantly our lives and our attitudes and this building will continue to be built to the glory of god That's the superstructure of the building that God has given us. And we've got a major responsibility to maintain the superstructure and the building of that building for God. Number two. Number two. How about the steady growth and maturity of a body? Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. Paul gives, instead of the superstructure of a building, the steady growth and maturity of a body using the metaphor of a physical body. And he gives this human body metaphor to depict the need for the spiritual body of Christ to grow into a fully mature state. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave, and then skip down, the pastors and he gave the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Literally, to a fully grown male. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then skip down from that section to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, here's that metaphor again, in every way this fully developed man to the measure of the stature of Christ into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, this is this is the idea of this body growing, this physical body being matured, full grown. And I ask myself the question, what are the uh, essential elements which causes the physical body to grow? And of course, of the many things that we could say, um, like proper diet, exercise, which of course I'm not into, I would say that the idea of essential growth, of course, in these nutrients are carbohydrates, right? And proteins, right? Carbs and proteins. And you know what the carb is that he lists here? It's the carbohydrate of love. The carbohydrate of love. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 2. Here's the carbohydrate of love. He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's the carb of love that causes the body to grow. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. There it is again. Verse 16, at the end, so that it builds itself up in love. Love mentioned three times there. That's very, very important. In fact, some have even suggested that one of the grand themes of the book of Ephesians is this concept of love. And if you're talking about the metaphor of the physical body and you're talking about what makes the body grow, it's this nutrient, it's the carbs of love. Notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Chapter four, verse two. In love. Chapter four, verse fifteen. Speaking the truth in love. Chapter four, verse sixteen. Builds itself itself up in love. Chapter five, verse two. And walk in love. Love, 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 love. That's the carb that we need in our lives for the physical body to grow. How much more important is this spiritual reality of the love of the saints? In love, in love, in love. Loving each other. Loving God, of course, but loving each other because we love God. This is the carbohydrate of love that causes the body to grow. And what about the protein? How about calling it the protein of knowledge? the protein of knowledge. Notice what he says in verse 13. Until we all attain this building up of the body of Christ, this, this growing body, looking at the physical body from someone who's uh, a newborn baby and someone who's growing because they're receiving uh, carbohydrates and they're maturing, they're growing in their stature. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To what end? To mature manhood. To the very measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You cannot grow as a Christian individually and you cannot grow corporately as a church unless you have protein. You must have protein. It has to be in your soul. And the protein of the soul of a Christian is the knowledge of the Son of God. And it's not just knowing facts about the Son of God, it is knowing Christ. It is knowing Him intimately. That's, that's what's said in John 17. To know God, to know the Father is to know Christ. And to know Christ is to know the Father. And if you know them, you have eternal life. And you're growing in that knowledge. And you are abounding in that knowledge, which means you are stuffing your spiritual face with the protein of the knowledge of God because you want to grow more and more and more into the very image of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. You want the knowledge of the Son of God. You know Christ if you're a Christian. You know Him. You've placed your faith in Him. You've repented of your sins. And you know Christ in that sense, even experientially, but you want to know Him more and more and more. That's why He actually says, In chapter 1, in his first prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. You're knowing Christ progressively. You know Him as a Christian. You can't be a Christian without knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless you know, have a personal intimacy with Jesus. But it's knowing Him even more. It's as Paul said in Philippians, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, right? You want to know Christ. When you put the metaphor together, you're saying what it means to know Christ is to give me spiritual protein. I've got the carbohydrate of love and now I have the protein of knowledge and I'm growing and maturing to the point of full maturation. I'm growing into being a full-grown male, a full-grown man. What does it produce? What do these nutrients, these proteins bring about when they're fully utilized? Verse 13, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's such a positive statement. You want to grow to the measure of the person of Christ. And what is that? Perfection. Perfection. He knows the Father with perfection. And you want to know Christ because you want to grow into that mature manhood so that you know the Father with perfection. You say, when's that going to be? Of course, at the day of your glorification. But you're moving in that direction. You're going there. And that's why he says in verse 15, we are to grow up. Grow up. This is, this is a way you can say with that phrase uh, what we uh, sort of use pejoratively. Grow up. Right? We are to grow up in every way into Him, into the head even Christ. If the body needs spiritual nutrients like love and knowledge to come from the outside in, because that's truly what you're doing, you're placing these nutrients into your soul, the love of Christ and the knowledge of the Son of God, then what does the body do for itself? If if that's the outside in, what does the body do for itself? And here's the answer. The body must work with itself having each individual part that functions together so that every joint joins in a common effort to hold the body together. That's exactly what he says in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together, and of course it's held together and joined by Christ, the head, but it's also held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. That's what the body is doing inside while you're feeding it from the outside in. All the joints, all the ligaments, they're all being utilized together to join, to bring together. Each part is working properly To use the analogy of the body as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12, the eye is doing its part, the hand is doing its part, the foot is doing its part. Even the uh, less presentable members are doing their part, even though they might not be as seen, as visible, uh, as the more presentable parts. However you want to use uh, the metaphor of the body, it is this, each Part, each joint is being joined together by the head who is Christ, so that the head is telling every part of the body what to do and how to do it, so that the body is functioning properly, working properly. Now that's positive. That's what we all must be doing, that's how we must be functioning. And for every positive statement that Scripture gives, there is a negative. What's the threat? What's the threat? What's the chief threat to the body's growth and maturity? Well, it's not hard to figure that out. It's a lack of love. It's a lack of love, that carbohydrate of love, and it's a lack of knowledge. I've seen more fracturing. I've seen more dissonance, if you want to use the the musical term, I've seen more of an implosion of an attempt for Satan to destroy certain rooms of this edifice even if he can't destroy the whole thing by lack of love and lack of knowledge. People who aren't loving each other, they're not walking in love, they're not being built up in love, they're not speaking the truth in love, and they are retarded in their knowledge they are not functioning with the kind of knowledge that would otherwise make them stop what they're doing because with the knowledge of the son of god you examine what you're doing you're examining what you're saying and you're saying to yourself that's not consistent with the knowledge of the son of god that's not what jesus would have me do That's not his thinking. That's not what he would do. That's not his teaching. That's not from his ministry. That's from some other place. In fact, it's satanic. The lack of love becomes something like this, self-love, self-love. I'm consumed with myself. I'm consumed about myself. I'm consumed about people meeting my needs And oh, if I ever get around to possibly meeting somebody else's needs, I might consider that, but the first priority is for people to meet my needs, to love me. Or I'll let that preacher study his Bible. I'll let others who are more trained to do so. But as far as my knowledge of the Son of God, I got that when I was in Sunday school as a little boy. And that should be sufficient, right? No. Our knowledge is ever-increasing, it's ever-growing. And I must have this desire for that knowledge so that I'm not stunted in this growth and maybe even malformed in my growth as an individual believer because I'm not catching up with the knowledge of the whole I'm not growing corporately with the body in the knowledge of the Son of God. And one of the first places that that malformation can occur is when people aren't consistent even in their church attendance. They're not here on Sunday morning and Sunday evening to soak up the knowledge of the Son of God they're home. They're making excuses about not being here. They're not opening up their own Bibles. They're not meditating on the truth of Scripture. They're not memorizing Scripture. Uh, they assume that what they can receive might be from the television or the radio from the, the car uh, to the grocery store and back. And the knowledge of the Son of God becomes something that is lacking so that then they begin to treat others in the body of Christ with their own knowledge and not the knowledge of the Son of God and what they seem to think is right rather than relying upon the knowledge of the Son of God. When I began thinking about this, again, this idea of the physical body and what are these satanic threats against it, including a lack of love and including a lack of the knowledge of the Son of God, it started me thinking about autoimmune deficiencies and how your body begins to attack itself. Listen to what Satan often does. We are constantly in contact with viruses, bacteria, allergens, and other environmental agents. Read there, Satan and his minions that enter our bodies and should not be there. That is when our immune systems go to work, finding the invading body, attacking and getting rid of it before it can do too much damage. That's what our bodies begin to do for self-defense and self-preservation, and that's what the body of Christ does. We, we huddle around each other, and we're like those cells within that physical body that say, that's an invading cell. Grab that one. Destroy that one. Deal with that one so that that one doesn't overtake the rest of us. But sometimes our immune systems are a little mixed up. They think they have to attack something that is not, in fact, an invading outsider. Not Satan. Not the world. But that which is inside of us, our spiritual attitudes, our thinking. And this is caused by an autoimmune disorder. For some reason, our immune system attacks parts of our own body. And that's what happens when you don't have the knowledge of the Son of God. You begin to attack yourself. And you say, myself alone? No, because... Paul talks about the corporate nature of the body of Christ. When it says you attack yourself, that means you're attacking others because we are members of one another. The backbone of our immune system is the ability for it to recognize what is our own body and what is not. Another way to put it is that the immune system must be able to figure out what is self and what is non-self. Sometimes this ability is compromised and the immune system recognizes part of the self as non-self. This doesn't mean the immune system attacks everything in the body. There are normally very specific tissues that an immune system sees as an invader, meaning we have a specific autoimmune disease. And this goes on to say there are over 80 known autoimmune diseases. That's just 80 that we might know of now. If you are experiencing some of the following symptoms with no apparent cause and your doctor is stumped, ask to see an autoimmune specialist. Now think of these as spiritual attacks on the body, right? Extreme, extreme fatigue, fever, Inflammation, swollen glands, abdominal pain or bloating, diarrhea, rashes, itchy skin, pins and needles feeling in the feet, legs, hands or arms, weight gain or loss, changes in color of your skin or the whites of your eyes. And what are those? Very easily in the spiritual dimension, all the attitudes, the mindset that someone says, I don't think I'm receiving the love I ought to receive. I don't think I have to attain to the knowledge that you're talking about here. And your body begins to attack itself. And every one of us are affected. This is, this is probably why Paul speaks with the metaphor of the physical body, because we all know our body, at least to some extent, and when we're not feeling well and when we're not doing well. And when our body seems to be attacking us and we are one body and when the body is attacked, we all feel it, we all know it, at least to some extent, and then we fight against it and we need to fight against it as a corporate group whenever it comes into our midst. Thirdly and finally for tonight, right in the midst of Paul talking about the physical body and the growing of that body, and the building up of a building as he does in chapter 2, he turns to the stunting of growth in children by the waves and winds of false doctrine. And he gives yet another metaphor. Look at verse 14. We need to grow up in this full manhood, using that idea the metaphor of the physical body, so that we no longer may be children. So he's still using that, and now he's going back to that place where we were an infant, then a child. And he goes back to that metaphor and we're in the process of growing up. And then he says, changing the metaphor, like children in a boat tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. What? prevents children from maturing into manhood? Waves and wind. The wind that is more powerful than a children's ability to navigate the boat. The idea of waves that slosh the boat to and fro with water getting inside the boat to waterlog the boat, to upend the boat, to capsize the boat. These are... These are metaphors of Paul, wind and waves, that are speaking of destruction. In fact, he even uses this phrase here, human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Notice those three words. Cunning, craftiness, deceitful. And then if you added even the word schemes, Human cunning is this. Cunning refers literally to dice playing. And it meant metaphorically to involve oneself in trickery. You're tricking these children. How easy is it to trick a child? Trick them into doing what you want them to do. Human cunning. And notice he says human cunning. This is the idea not of these these. Spiritual beings, because he says we don't war against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces, chapter 6. Here he says human cunning. What does that mean? That means those spiritual forces are working through human beings to do their work. It's not as though you've got to tell your kids, watch out for all of those spiritually unseen beings who are roaming around the universe. Because they would say, I don't see them, Daddy. I don't know them. I don't know where they are. I I don't know how to protect myself from them. But you can say, yes, these spiritual forces are at work, and they're at work through human cunning, human trickery. And in this case, I'm convinced that what Paul is saying is the trickery of false teachers plying their false doctrine in the church And if you're a child in the fellowship because you lack the knowledge of the Son of God and you aren't loving other believers as you ought, then you might very well be classified not as a fully maturing, growing male, but someone who is actually a child and you're in the boat and it's being tossed to and fro by the waves of false doctrine. And the wind is prevailing in that direction toward their trickery and you're being pulled gravitationally to that. And you're like a child. And you can't discern and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to respond. And he adds, by the way, craftiness, Panargia. And it means literally a readiness to anything and metaphorically malicious deception. Malicious, malicious deception. Trickery and malicious deception. And then he says, in deceitful schemes. Plainase, deceitful. And schemes, methodion, uh, methods. Satanic methods. If you go back to the building, he is putting those detonating explosives in certain areas of the building, of the house, of the temple, to destroy it. And you and I can't be children about this, which means we've got to know not only what true doctrine is, but by its opposite, what false doctrine is. That means that you have to read and study and acquire the knowledge of the Son of God and love the brothers and sisters who you care about in the body so that they might not be like these children tossed to and fro by the wind and waves of false teaching. It's not just the responsibility of the preacher. He teaches and equips you, but you are growing in the knowledge of the Son of God so that when you hear false doctrine, you can know it almost immediately. That's not true. That's not right. That's not what the Bible says. I had a man say to me in this morning's, worship hour afterward that he'd gone to another church earlier than, than our noon service. And he said he heard something, and when he heard it, he immediately said, the first part of that sentence is true, the second part of that sentence is not true, and he was dead on target. He was absolutely right on. And I was praising God because I was saying, now that's a person who's reading, studying, discerning, understanding. He's growing in his knowledge of the Son of God. You want to know how how Paul talks to Peter about this. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is sort of capturing what he says here in Ephesians 4 about human cunning, about craftiness, and about deceitful scheming. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, notice this, to deceitful spirits You say, well, that's, again, those spiritual forces in the heavenlies. I don't know where they are. I can't see them. I don't know what they're doing. And teachings of demons. Yes, there they are. I can't see them. I don't know precisely. They're not flesh and blood. But notice this, verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared... And then he gives an example, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Yes, they are deceitful spirits. That's the root of it. That's the origin of it. Yes, it is the teaching of demons, but it is through the insincerity of liars. It's through lying teachers. And they are flesh and blood. You see them. You see what they look like. You hear what they are teaching. You see at variance when they don't represent the Word of God accurately. So how do we stunt the stunter? He's trying to stunt the growth of children so that they will forever remain in the spiritually childlike phase. How do we bring this person up to maturity? Verse 15 by speaking what? The truth in love. By speaking the truth in love. And you see here in this context what this has to mean? It's not just speaking generic, loving encouragement to fellow believers. Look, I just want to encourage you, brother. It's speaking doctrinal truth in love so as to combat the schemes of the devil. You are giving people truth, doctrinal truth, and you are speaking that truth to them. The only other time this particular phrase like speaking truth in love is mentioned is in Galatians chapter 4 by Paul saying this to the Galatians. He said, do you love me any less when I am speaking the truth to you, when I'm telling you the truth? Telling you doctrinal truth so that you won't be tossed to and fro by the waves and wind of false doctrine. I'm speaking the truth in love. And we do it from the pulpit and you do it with each other and you're writing notes of encouragement about what Scripture says, right? Because our reliance is on Scripture. Our baseline is Scripture. Our plumb line is Scripture. Our foundation is Scripture. It's what Scripture teaches us so that through us we teach others so the body can be built up, so it can fully mature, so that the building, the edifice is raised to the glory of God and that we won't be these children in an infancy stage, in an immature realm, so that we're tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of false doctrine. There is so much packed in here. I wish we could go on. Our time is gone. Why don't we do this? Why don't we bow our heads? And why don't we ask the Lord to give us the application of these truths in very practical ways. As your head is bowed, as your eyes are closed, ask the Lord. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the one in which you're supposed to grow and mature in every way into Him. How this whole body is to be joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And your individual part is working properly, making therefore the body grow. Lord, what's my part? What can I do to love one another and to attain even greater knowledge of the Son of God? And how can I avoid jealousy and strife and envy and bitterness and wrath and malice so that the building is growing, that the body is growing, and that I'm no longer a child tossed to and fro by false doctrinal winds and waves. Father, I confess to you that I need to know more of your word. I need to grow in my knowledge and understanding of the Son of God. I need to know everything I can about Christ, the head of the body, the cornerstone of the building the only one who can lead us as the head, as the cornerstone, away from false teaching to recognize it for what it is into true teaching, true doctrine, healthy, sound doctrine. Father, it won't be simply because of preaching as important as that is. Well, it will will include study of the fundamentals of the faith. It will include classes where we search the Scripture and study the Scripture. It'll be the epistle of James in a women's ministry context. It'll be men trying to learn on Wednesday night how to grasp Your Word interpretively in a better way. It'll be teaching our children from their earliest days who Jesus is and who the Father is and the Holy Spirit and the Scripture and how we're supposed to read it and understand it and study it and memorize it and meditate on it. To know how to encourage one another by speaking truth into their lives, the truth of Scripture, to combat these false assertions about God and Christ and the Spirit. Lord, grow this body with every joint that is supplied, every ligament, every internal organ each individual working part growing together building itself up in love allow the the building not to have detonating explosives in secret places in various rooms let us root those out let us undo the wires and let us love one another and not have jealousy and strife with each other and allow us to grow we know we're young, Father. We know we're growing as a small congregation. Allow us to, to move out of this physical location into the next without a misstep, without missing a beat, so that we can grow properly and bring others to us to build brick and mortar into this grand edifice and allow us to see the body grow spiritually and numerically because we want what You want. And may we do this for the glory and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.